Thank you for joining us on this episode of Bookshelf, the Faculty Division's podcast series that provides commentary by authors and others on important new books and works of legal scholarship. I'm your host, Grace Scotchling. In this episode, Russell Weaver, Professor of Law and Distinguished University Scholar at Louis D. Brandeis School of Law, University of Louisville, and Steve Friedland, Senior Scholar and Professor of Law at Elon University School of Law, both discuss Professor Weaver's new book, From Gutenberg to the Internet, Free Speech, Advancing Technology, and the Implications for Democracy. In From Gutenberg to the Internet, Professor Weaver argues that the history of free expression is inextricably intertwined with advances in speech technology. However, until recently, most forms of communication were limited and controlled by so-called gatekeepers, who had the power to limit or control the ability of ordinary individuals to communicate with each other. With the advent of the internet and new forms of technology, such as personal computers, iPhones, etc., people have a much greater capacity to communicate with one another. Although both governments and private entities have attempted to control discourse over the internet, new technologies have enabled ordinary individuals to more easily communicate with each other and to participate in the political process. As a result, Weaver argues, the internet is reshaping political debate and political action for good and for bad. While enabling greater participation, it has also led to so-called fake news and the creation of opportunities for governments and people to meddle in the elections of other countries. Our conversation will begin with Professor Weaver's short introduction to his book and will be followed by Professor Friedland's comments, to which Professor Weaver will respond. The two will then engage in a bit of back-and-forth dialogue. As always, the Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speaker. We hope these broadcasts, like our other programming, will serve to stimulate discussion and further exchange on the topics they address. And now, Professor Russell L. Weaver on From Gutenberg to the Internet, Free Speech, Advancing Technology, and the Implications for Democracy. The book focuses primarily on several different things. First, it looks at the changes in technology over the centuries and how they've affected communications. But then, secondarily, it looks at the question of what we call gatekeepers, people who try to control the use of technologies, and and it it goes through and describes how over the centuries different people have had the ability to control whether other people could use advancing technologies for speech. And then third, it, it looks at the impact of the Internet on democracy. And part of the point that I make in the book is that they're really both good effects and bad effects. You know, some people have said, you know, look, the the Internet's fabulous because it creates the potential for real d- democratic discourse between people. And I think that's right in the sense that anybody can communicate, anybody can communicate about any anything they want to communicate and really can use the platform to to advance ideas or goals or projects that they want to pursue. Of course, it also has negative aspects, and part of what I talk about in the book is the problem of fake news and potential abuse of it. I talk about how it's been used in political campaigns and also, you know, in particular, the Obama campaign uh, for presidency, the 2008 campaign. It was an important part of that campaign. And also how Donald Trump used it not only during during his campaign, but 
as president. So looking at it from a variety of perspectives, I think we get mixed results. Ultimately, being a person who's very much in favor of free speech, I'm okay with even the negative aspects of it. Steve, you want to go next? Yeah, this is Steve Friedland, and I am going to comment on Russ's book, From Gutenberg to the Internet, his second edition. And the first thing I will say is that I think it's a really important contribution to the freedom of speech and how it impacts democracy. I think a lot of times people take a lens and look at one or the other. Russ does a terrific job of associating advancing technologies and speech, but not just speech in separation, but speech as it relates to democracy. And Russ goes back far and I think does an excellent job of showing that we think of advancing technologies now as starting perhaps the year 2000. But no, they started centuries ago. And that's why I like even the title from Gutenberg to the Internet, where he goes way back and shows how these technologies have allowed people to control communication and limit it for centuries and in many different ways. Uh, I agree with Russ in a lot of ways about how these technologies have impacted speech, and I think Russ raises a lot of important issues. Some of the issues, first of all, involve reframing. Uh, In the era of freedom of speech, and again, not all speech was free, there was, in a way, a static approach where we had print newspapers. We had uh, a way of communicating with each other verbally, and it often was face-to-face. And what Russ raises are the changes we have now because of the Internet. And the first thing I would say in terms of just responding to what Russ did is that I think I would go even further than Russ in terms of reframing freedom of speech and say that advancing technologies today are changing the way we are as humans. It's changing the human condition. I think that if you just go to a restaurant and see two people at a table, they may not look at each other at all and may be communicating through their phones and that lots of people will have followers and influencers and will be better at texting than at speaking. And so what I'm going to suggest is that Russ is right. We are in the middle of a revolution, but it's a revolution as to what it means to be human. And Russ, I'll stop for a second if you have any comment or you want to interject. No, I agree, Steve. That's that's a really insightful um, perspective. I mean, it's certainly redefining every aspect of life, and and we see things that simply have become obsolete, you know, compared to compared to two centuries ago. You know, if somebody's looking, for example, for a, you know, to say to donate embryos, um, you know, years ago you'd go to a doctor and you'd say, well, I've got embryos to donate. How do I do it? Now there's a you can do it online. And we see it not only in things like that, but we see it in terms of political movements. You know, this you know, we had this attempt to push an opt out some years ago in terms of, of Thanksgiving, you know, the idea of opting out of TSA screenings and trying to slow down and stop the entire process. I mean the opt out program was a complete failure because really it was kind of a dumb idea. But it was amazing how within the space of a couple of weeks, 
uh, a few individuals were managed to 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 bring this to the public's attention to make it a major public issue and interestingly it ran its course within a couple of weeks in other words it went viral it went nationwide but it was ultimately resolved and so we're seeing this in in lots of different ways uh, that, that we hadn't seen before and I agree with you, and there's one other thing I want to raise, too. I think you make some great points, again, about the chronology, starting with Gutenberg, and it really rolls over the century in different ways in terms of how we uh, control speech and communication. And one of the things I think that people overlook now is that TV was a really controlling medium, that it didn't start with the Internet, that TV allowed uh, for the first time in a way, to change context just like that, where you watch a show about people who are stranded on an island when, of course, they're not stranded, but it becomes more real to many people than reality. And that it became the context of no context, in a sense, uh, where people across the country, around the world can watch something. And we start already with the seeds of people call it fake news today, but what is true and what is false, that was way before the Internet where the lines started to blur. And, of course, reality TV today is very unreal. I mean, you call it reality TV, but it's as probably as set up as anything. And the second point I wanted to make is that I think the Internet, you talk about freedom of speech or free speech, and I want to press on those words a little bit, particularly the word free. And I think the Internet has a basic flaw that I would highlight here. And the basic flaw is we think we're accessing it for free. But that is not the case at all because we have consented to mass surveillance in order to access it. And I think that basic flaw on the internet has contributed to a redesign of what kinds of things are acceptable. I mean, think of it. If someone in the heyday of home paper delivery, newspaper delivery, was told, you'll get a free newspaper, but allow our uh, people from the newspaper to come sit in your living room and watch how you eat and watch when you go to bed and watch what your uh, sanitary habits are and when you shower, people would say no way. But in a sense, when we have access to apps and internet sites, they're monitoring us all the time so that we talk about speech and the internet Again, you talked about uh, you know, positives and negatives. And I don't think people are fully aware of, of what we've given away voluntarily in order to have that access. Absolutely right. And, you know, it's, it's interesting how this debate, privacy versus free speech, is becoming much more important. And, you know, and, and of course, we've seen this with governmental cyber surveillance, with the government's ability to use the Internet to to spy on all of us and we see it in lots of lots of different things in society uh companies being able to gather data about about us so it's part of the downside of the internet uh on balance i'm still happy because because of the speech potential and because of how it's opened up society and the ability of people to communicate and participate in societies in, in ways that didn't exist before and I agree with you, although I'm, I, like you, am a little uncomfortable anytime I hear, let's let the government regulate. 
particularly when it comes to speech, because one thing I want here more is of greater transparency and less secrecy in how the government is using its face recognition software, how it's gathering data. And of course, now with the idea of big data, it's not just for investigations that they're gathering, they're gathering on everybody for potential use in the future. And I like the idea of individuals communicating directly with individuals. And I am a little more wary of the big companies, especially their partnerships with the government that we don't know about, so that this information is being shipped off downstream. And it's definitely finding places that we'd be surprised about if we asked where our information ended up. And while some of the uses are good, I think, like you noted, there are two sides on this in this coin. Some of the uses will, can be abused at a later point. Right. Absolutely. And it, it's one of the one of the worries we have. Um, we've seen that worldwide. You know, with with governments gathering information about people, companies gathering information about people. It's interesting. Europe is moving in a little bit different direction with the adoption of the General Data Protection Regulation, where it mandates greater protection of, of privacy. Of course, the U.S. hasn't done much of that. California has its own Privacy Act, but most American jurisdictions don't do much to regulate what 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 these big companies can do, or even what, and virtually nobody's done much about what the, the U.S. government can do. You know, following the Snowden revelations, we saw that there there were some restrictions on on what the government could do. But by and large, things have continued in terms of the government having very broad authority. And I think uh, you and I both look at that as perhaps a good thing where there's a lack of regulation, but a bad thing if the government has no limits on abuse. I mean, where are the lines drawn? And I think you asked some really good questions such as what's the press anymore? Is there such a thing as the press? And who's going to be the watchdog of democracy? It was thought for decades that it was the media. But if we don't have any idea what the media is anymore, do we still give them that role? I don't know if you have any idea, further ideas about those questions that you raise, which I think are excellent questions. Well, of course, the, the interesting thing is, because of the Internet, we're seeing all sorts of new types of what we call watchdogs develop. I mean, we see it with, with we now have microblogs that look at just particular parts of particular cities. But we see not only the microblogs, but we also see different types of newspapers, online newspapers developing. Um, and, and I think our definition of journalist and newspaper really has changed. Uh, I, I was, a few years ago, I was in Vienna, um, invited by the United Nations, and we were talking about who should be regarded as a journalist. And many of the journalists were there, and there were lots of journalists, started out thinking, no, it only should be traditional newspapers, traditional media outlets, you know, that have curated sites that, you know, have editors and journalistic control and all those sorts of things. But over the course of two or three days, we learned a lot about what was happening in some countries, for example, in Mexico. Um, if you're, Most of the really good journalism is being done by bloggers and anonymous bloggers, and the reason for that is that journalists who openly 
write articles and attach their name to them were being killed. And so the only way you could really get the information out was through these anonymous blogs. So we're seeing really some very dramatic changes in society. And I think you're right that things are rapidly changing. And I'm going to actually shift the frame here because you, I think, did a really nice job broadly of looking at democracy. And one thing I've now seen with technology is that according to a lot of the studies, it changes our brains. It actually has an impact on neuroscience. And a couple of things that I think that have occurred that I look at as negatives include confirmation bias, where people will find and seek out the things they agree with. So it's not about finding truth and facts. It's about finding people who are just in with like mind. Now, I think that can be a good thing, but it also can be a bad thing when we're looking at issues that are complex. And one thing they're finding, and this is something that troubles me, is that when we look now at technology, thinking with complexity is actually, according to the neuroscience, very difficult. So that Twitter and other types of things allow people to resolve complex issues in uh, 240 plus characters. They don't really have to go through all the nuances and don't. And that actually they're finding that some people vote based on appearance now because you mentioned it, information overload, and that the simplicity that often occurs actually can be troubling. I know there's another side to that, but this kind of confirmation bias is something that is a problematic issue, I think, for democracy. And that may be attributable to what the founding fathers did not think was a problem that I think uh, many of us, I know I'm in this camp now, at least to some extent, uh, who look at two parties and say, maybe that was the Achilles heel in our system, where we just have, you're either in one camp or the other. And there's no continuum, although, of course, as you know, Russ, there are lots of different positions. But the neuroscientists are saying that our brains are changing from the technology, and it's interesting to see how that's occurring as well. Really interesting in terms of our kids who probably use technology more than we do. Yeah, I think our kids, if you look at them, I, I sometimes look at them and say, how are they learning? How does this work? And when I go to the gym and I'm watching the TV, for example, and I see people who just watch um, the TV over and over and they look at an issue, is that enough to really form opinions? And, of course, the answer is going to be yes. But our kids are getting it, too, and it's amazing uh, what they do. I asked my son uh, about Instagram, and I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm on a chat with about about 150 people. And I'm thinking, do I really know 150 people well enough that I want to chat with them? And for him, it was nothing. 